Good morning. What an exciting morning to be at uh, Central Hall. Um, it's kind of a case of not quite sure what's going to happen next, and there's, there's kind of a real risk of, of being the anticlimax here now, after all the excitement and the, the joy and the celebration of all the ministry that's happening here among you. Uh, and it is a joy to be part of that this morning. Thank you for the uh, invitation to be with you. It's a privilege and an honor to be here. Uh, as well as being Promotion Sunday, as uh, Martin has already said, today is also Education Sunday. So I guess that's why a chaplain from an educational establishment is preaching today. And again, it was a joy to be part of that moment where you were praying for your young people going off to university. And I would encourage you to keep praying for them and all of those among you who are at university. We won't be focusing, if you like, formally on education uh, this morning, but I hope that what I share will help us to think about how we learn and grow as disciples. And that's the theme we'll be exploring Let's pray together. Lord, may your gospel be to us more than just words. May it truly affect the way we speak, the way we think, and the way we act, so that your kingdom may come and your will be done in our lives and through your church. Amen. A few phrases that may be familiar to you. Shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. Being wise after the event. If only I knew then what I knew now. I wonder if those phrases resonate with you in any way. Well, they certainly resonate with me. I know now that Mary Poppins can't, in fact, fly with an umbrella. If my eight-year-old self knew that, then I might not have had to use the same umbrella as a walking stick as I launched myself off the shed roof. True story. One word to sum these thoughts up is hindsight. And it seems to me that this theme runs through our readings. And hindsight might just be one of God's great gifts to us as we learn and grow in our discipleship. In fact, I would go as far as to say it displays something of the the provenient nature of God that works in our stubbornness, with our poor decisions, and our determination to do things our way. Our Old Testament reading contains something of Moses' farewell speech. Shortly after this, Joshua succeeds Moses as the leader of the Israelites, and he is the one to lead them to the promised land. And I think the Israelites could have benefited enormously from hindsight. With that gift, they would have seen clearly how God was faithful to them throughout their wilderness wanderings. But instead, they they continuously grumble about having no food, then about having the wrong kind of food. They create other idols and gods for themselves, and and they constantly test Moses's and, indeed, God's patience. And along the way, they even believed 
that they would have been better off if they were still in slavery. Well, with this in the background, Moses offers the people a stark choice. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. And then later in verse 19, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Is this, is this really a choice? If I offered you this morning a, a choice between a, a beautiful, ripe plate of sweet fruit or a bowl of gruel, what would you choose? Who would choose death, adversity, curses? Well, this is a hindsight moment. Moses invites the Israelites to reflect on their covenant relationship with God, on their journey so far, and on the choices that some in their community have made. Some have been seduced by other cults and religions, and some have turned away from God. And these other religions allowed them to be more self-serving than self-giving, more individualistic than community-minded. They'd already chosen a way other than God's way. And in doing so, they had chosen death. So Moses invites those who are present to make a different choice, those who remain to make a different choice before they enter the promised land. And he reminds them that this covenant relationship involves obedience to God's law and in turn that faithfulness to God leads to God's blessing. Any other choice isn't worth considering. So he's saying count the cost now before going further rather than paying the cost with hindsight later. Faithful living as part of the covenant relationship with God went and indeed goes hand in hand with being called into relationship with all of God's people, no exceptions. God's people then and now were responsible for each other's well-being. A very silent uh, commute on a packed Monday morning tube tells us how lacking in community understanding and well-being we are in society today. And in our current climate, fraught with divisions, disagreement, and a desire to live more and more for ourselves, it's easy to be despondent, to believe that the past has little to teach us, since we seem to repeat many of the same mistakes over and over. To quote the German philosopher George Hegel, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. That seems especially poignant this week as we've marked the, center, uh, the 80 years since the outbreak of World War II, uh, which may have got missed in all the else that's happened this week. But God's grace says something different. In the words of Pete Gregg from the 24-7 prayer movement, there is more grace in God than there is failure in you. There is more grace in God than there is failure 
in you. Just as Moses encourages the Israelites, I would encourage us that we can learn from our past. And as a recent experience taught me, we can have the hope that the generation to follow may not be willing to make the same mistakes. In July, I had the privilege, as in, in my role as chaplain, of attending the university graduations in the summer as part of the academic procession. At each ceremony, a uh, student is invited to address the assembled congregation and to give, an, uh, to give a speech. And this year, without exception, these driven students opted to talk about living their lives, not for their own gain, but to make a difference in the world. And one student used a, a quote that's attributed to Winston Churchill. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. What choices might we make today? Would we make different choices looking back over our lives? Our New Testament reading um, gives at least two of the characters an opportunity to reflect on their past relationships, to learn from how they've behaved and to wipe the slate clean. And here again is evidence of God's provenient grace, offering us forgiveness, offering us love, and the offer of a second or third or fourth chance before we've even realized that we have need of it. Paul writes to Philemon and encourages him to take back Onesimus. Philemon was a slave owner and Onesimus was one of his slaves. It would seem that Onesimus had run away from Philemon after stealing from him, which was an offence punishable by death. And during his self-imposed exile, he meets Paul and he responds to Jesus' love as a Christian brother. And Paul sends him back to Philemon, also now a follower of Christ, pleading with him to give Onesimus a second chance, uh, saying, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful. It's a play on his name, which means useful. As a slave, he stole and was fairly useless. As a follower of Christ, he is useful. So both Philemon and Onesimus have a choice. They can be reconciled as slave owner and a slave with the grudge still between them. Or they can be reconciled as children of God with whom there is no longer slave nor free. For all are one in Christ. A brother or sister in the Lord can't be a slave in the flesh. So this is the choice that they face, life or death, live as they did before, or in the light of the gospel of Christ, a gospel of peace and reconciliation. And in their newfound faith is a potential new beginning for them both. But it's not without risk. 
Philemon risks damaging his pride and status as a former slave owner. Onesimus risks retribution from the person he has wronged. But the risk is worth it for the sake of the gospel of Christ. So what risks do we need to take to live out the gospel spirit of reconciliation? Between friendships, between families, between relationships, political divisions, nations, faith traditions. And that final one is certainly a path we tread on a daily basis at the university as part of a a multi-faith chaplaincy team serving a multicultural university. For example, in this past year, tensions rising up in Gaza were reflected uh, in a small scale between the the Israeli and the Palestinian student societies. So quietly in the background, we were challenged to take risks to advise the university on managing the relationships between our Jewish and Muslim students present in those societies. Finally, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus offers the crowds another stark and risky choice. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Hate is not a word we expect to come from Jesus' mouth unless it's in the context of you have heard Hate your enemies, but I tell you, love them. But what Jesus is teaching us about is the consequences of placing our discipleship above everything else, even our family ties. It's a choice that most of us aren't faced with between God and family, but it was a real choice for those first converts to the new covenant relationship. And it is still true for people around the globe today. So Jesus isn't talking about emotional hate, per se. He's talking about the significance of making a choice and counting the cost of that choice in advance so that we're not caught out later saying, I didn't sign up for that. I'm absolutely terrible when it comes to documents or instructions for new technology, especially when it comes to that fine print. Rarely do I get that far, and I've certainly been caught out once or twice when I didn't read the small print. Jesus is spelling out the small print for us here. There should be no surprises in what he's offering us. No getting away from the fact that discipleship, that putting Christ above all else, involves a cost. And then he illustrates that with two images. Who would start to build a tower without knowing what resources you have? Who would go to war without assessing the abilities and the numbers of the troops, your own troops, compared to the enemies? I love the program Homes Under the Hammer. I don't know if anybody's 
seen that program here before. But in that program, people go to auction to buy up properties, quite often as an investment opportunity. The presenters of this program always emphasize the need to view the property first, to read the small print in the legal pack, and to be clear about your budget. And it's amazing how many people in this program go through the process of bidding on a house only to be caught out by one or more of those bits of advice. The costs spiral, making, uh, risking making a loss on their initial costs. And then back in the university context, up and down the country, as we've marked here today, excited students are preparing to embark on a course of study. Each year there is a small number of students who arrive with all the enthusiasm in the world, but soon the work becomes too demanding and they begin to question whether they can stay the course. In setting out the cost in advance, Jesus is dispelling us of any notion that following him leads to social enhancement or to personal betterment. If that's what we think we've signed up for, we need to think again. It does involve putting Christ and then others above ourselves and living for the benefit of others. Not the choice that some of those Israelites have made, resulting in Moses' stark offer of life or death. Back in February, I had the privilege of visiting India completely as a tourist. I visited the Golden Triangle, uh, Agra, Jaipur and Delhi. As part of that tour, I went up to the border uh, to Amritsar to visit the Golden Temple. Well, in, in that and every Sikh temple, they offer a simple meal known as a langa. It runs 24-7, feeding anyone who wants to come for free and is staffed almost entirely by volunteers. And they consider it a privilege to serve in that way, morning, noon, and night. It was a beautiful offering, and it was quite emotional to watch the joy of those who were serving others. This is what it means for us to carry our cross. And note the present tense in that verse. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, not who didn't carry the cross or who will not. Who does not carry the cross and follow me? It emphasizes the everydayness of identifying with the gospel of Christ, who was only too willing to take up his cross for us. And so again, we come back to the question of how we value life by, by how much we have or by what we give. Jesus' way of abundant living led him to the cross. So where will our choices lead us? So what do we learn from this today? Well, so often children think that they know better than their elders. Uh, my nieces, uh, a 10 and a 13-year-old, they love baking. 
but so often they ignore the instruction of their much wiser uncle. Uh, the results can be quite interesting at times. Well, the same is true of us and God. So often we think that we know better than the one who has created the universe. And quite often we need to look back, to look to God's provenient grace, to learn from our mistakes, and to go again. And the good news is that we can act on that today. God's love and grace shown to us in Jesus offers us a fresh start each time we return to him, each time we choose to take up our cross again. And hopefully with the benefit of hindsight, we won't make the same mistakes again. But even if we do, God has counted the cost for us in advance with foresight and so God's grace shown through Jesus Christ still wins out thanks be to God Amen